I'd like to begin tonight with a quote from Suzuki Roshi. One time when he was teaching a retreat, a sashin in the Zendo, he said, when you are sitting in the midst of your problem, what is more real to you, your problem or the fact of being here? Your presence in the here and now is the ultimate fact. Your presence in the here and now is the ultimate fact. What is more real to you, your alive presence in the here and now, or the story you are telling yourself? Have you had any stories today? (laughs) Oh, a few, huh? So many stories arise as we sit. Isn't it amazing? So many stories. Fear has a story. Anger has a story. Grief has a story. Jealousy has a story. Judgment has a story. The comparing mind has a story. Regret has a story. And they all seem to come unbidden. We don't sit here to think about it, do we? But lo and behold, they arrive and off we are on some journey of thought. Unnoticed, this kind of activity puts us in a trance, and um, Tara has spoken several times of the trance that we go into. I also like to use that word uh, for what happens to us when we get lost in thought. We go into a trance. And I even looked up the word trance in the dictionary once because I was curious about the origins of the word, and what I discovered is that the word trance is from the root word transeer, which means to depart. (laughs) In a trance, we depart. We're out of here. We're not all here. We have lost our presence in the here and now. The pull of this trance is very strong, isn't it? And it happens really fast. So which is more real to us, the fact of being here and now or this trance? Sometimes we do get a glimpse or flash of this presence that is always with us, this presence that is unborn, unconditioned, unfabricated that has nothing to do with effort or the time spent meditating, the same presence that was with you when you were born, that will be with you when you die, the knowing and luminous mind which is given to us as part of our birthright. A Tibetan Lama by the name of Ergen Tulku calls this present self-existing wakefulness. And he says, self-existing wakefulness has been present within the mind stream of all sentient beings since primordial time. Every being has this nature, this self-existing wakefulness. And this is what wakes up as we practice. What veils or clouds our recognition of this luminous presence is, as our own deepest self is our identification with thinking. 
Thinking is one of the primary ways that we hold on. Through thinking, we get entangled. Just as Gil was talking last night, we get entangled in a world of concepts that take us further and further away from actuality, from this direct here and now presence. Many of you have heard of the teacher, Buddha Dasa, who was a Thai forest um, great being in Thailand who uh, was an amazing being. And he spent most of his time just sitting quietly. He lived as a monk in southern Thailand, and he spent most of his time living under one tree. And a whole ashram sort of grew up around him. And all of Thailand would come to visit him. They, he wrote several books, and people revered him and respected him, and they would come to visit. And one time, somebody asked Buddha Dasa, they said, Buddha Dasa, would you describe the world? And he said three words, lost in thought. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? It's pretty amazing. So tonight I want to talk about this phenomenon that we all know so intimately and we know so much about. But I want to uh, see how it is that on retreat in this silence that we're cultivating and in this stillness that we have this enormous opportunity to look more closely at how this works in our actual experience and investigate it so that we may have the possibility of cutting through it more easily and knowing it for what it is. This phenomenon of being lost in thought is called papancha. It's a Pali word. The, the literal definition of papancha is mental proliferation or the unbidden going of the mind away from the present to experiences or objects. In other words, it's thinking which takes us further and further away from the actuality of the living moment. One um, classic uh, definition that I like a lot um, from one of the texts on Papancha is this. Papancha is the propensity of the worldling's imagination to erupt in an effusion of mental commentary that obscures the bare data of cognition. (laughs) It's very quaint and colorful. In other words, someone walks in the room, that's the bare data. A person appears. The effusion of mental commentary is all our thoughts about the person. It doesn't take much, does it? (laughs) We like what they're doing, we don't like what they're doing, or we sort of feel neutral about what they're doing, and off we go. Inherent in this idea of papancha is the the, um, understanding that papancha also projects out onto the world and objects characteristics that are not there. Papancha invests objects with various projected characteristics 
and so prevents us from seeing things as they are. All we know is a person walks in the room. All the rest is interpretation, is projection, our ideas about the simple event. We see this in our world. We live in a world of papancha. That's what really we, we swim in. One of the best examples of, not a, the best, but a, an example of papancha is racial stereotyping. How it is that white people project, do papancha around Hispanic people or black people or Arabs or Palestinians. And they, in turn, do the same with us. Racial stereotyping is based in the fear of those who are different from us and a kind of ignorance, really, about the bare data. These differences make us afraid. And so we try to distance ourselves from that which is unfamiliar, which creates fear. And we project onto them negative characteristics as evidence for why we should be afraid of them. And this goes on so quickly and so fast and so pervasively that we begin to believe all this. We kind of, it just kind of, we glaze over, our eyes sort of glaze over when we hear this kind of papancha. This is what the mind does. All minds do this. So we're not to take it personally. Here we have a very rare opportunity to see how papancha works. So tonight I want to talk about uh, and investigate with you the four, what are known as the four root causes of papancha. But first, I thought it might be interesting to look at some examples of the opposite of papancha, the opposite of this tendency, because it doesn't have to be that way. The first example I thought of was the Buddha himself. After he had had this great awakening and he had rested himself and enjoyed the bliss of his freedom, his liberation, he um, decided to go find his old companions. And so he was walking down the road and looking quite, you know, radiant and amazing probably, kind of glowing, I would imagine. And some people stopped and asked him who he was. They were very curious who this guy was. And as the story goes, he simply said, I'm awake. He didn't say, well, I, I was this prince a long time ago, and my father, we had a difficult relationship. <laughs> And, you know, my mother died shortly after I was born. I was raised by my aunt. And, you know, I was in the palace, but my father wouldn't let me go out a lot. And he didn't go into the whole mud yards. He just said, I'm awake. One of my first Buddhist teachers was a Tibetan Lama. This was way back in the early 70s. And I didn't know very much then about Tibet or what was going on in that part of the world. I didn't know the Chinese had come into Tibet and driven many of the Tibetans out and that many of the monks had fled. But I met this teacher named Tartang Toku, who was living in Berkeley at the time. And he told us a little bit about his 
the fact of having been being a refugee and having to flee Tibet with only the clothes on his back and a few um, books and precious objects and um, having to leave his family and friends. And to me, this was just like, oh, my God. Oh, I was just totally into the sympathy for the drama of it all. So I went up to him after, after he, the presentation was over, and I was just expressing my sympathy. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry that you had to go through all that. And he looked at me, and he laughed. <laughs> and he patted me on the head, and he said, not to worry, not to worry. And I was just completely amazed. Not to worry, what are you? No papancha there. Another example of what is sort of the opposite of our tendency to papancha is a, a beautiful haiku poem by a woman named Shikibu. It goes like this. Watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. In each of these instances, something expressed was more significant, more present than the whole complicated story. Another is that a few days ago, I carry around this journal with me, like many of us do, and I don't write in it very often. But the other day, I was just kind of opening it, and the, and the page fell open to an entry I had made last year on my birthday. And I don't, uh, I, I actually hadn't remembered, but it was a dream, and I wanted to share the dream with you. I don't often, sh- I probably have never shared my dreams in a Dharma talk, but I, I thought it, it, it seemed somewhat pertinent to the subject tonight. <clears throat> um, evidently on that night, which was the night of my birthday, before going to sleep, I had read something that Zen Master Dogen had written, and I had also written this in my journal. I had read that he had defined practice as giving life to your original self. So then that night I dreamt. It was kind of a teaching dream. In my dream, I was in a house with an infinite number of rooms. And I knew this house to be the vastness of being and that this was my true home. And in the dream, I saw how the thinking mind lives in only a very few of these rooms. It doesn't live in the vastness of being. And I sort of got the message in the dream that if I spend too much time in my thinking mind, it can diminish my sense of being. The message was to remember the vastness of being, which is my true home. So we give this thinking mind a lot of airtime. Another ancient voice, Master Seng San, 
said, <clears throat> step aside from all thinking and there is nowhere you can't go. What I like is that he doesn't say get rid of all thinking, which is often what we think we need to do. Okay, the thinking mind is a big problem. I'm just going to get rid of it, erase it, get so still that not one thought can possibly arise. It's a futile endeavor. We have times of stillness. There's value in exploring silence. But it's not very freeing. It doesn't make us free. Quieting the mind is different from freeing the mind. So he doesn't say get rid of all thinking. He says step aside from all thinking and there is nowhere you can't go. To step aside, I think, means being free in relationship to thinking, not in bondage to our thought, not identified with our thought. When we think who we are is our thinking, this is called being lost in thought. When we stop looking to our thoughts to tell us who we are, this is the beginning of loosening our bondage, loosening this identification. A story of a little boy who was talking to his mom, and he said, Mom, pretend that you're surrounded by a thousand hungry tigers. What would you do? His mom, wanting to support her son's curiosity and problem solving, <laughs> said, gee, you know, she thought about it a little, and she said, gee, I don't know, what would you do? He said, I'd stop pretending. <laughs> we can all do this. To stop pretending is to see the whole production for what it is. It's a momentary trance of thought. I've often found that waking up in the morning, those, those first moments of waking up in the morning, is a really good time to see how quickly we take on the identification with our thinking. You know how it is when you wake up in the morning and there's a moment... Maybe just a moment before the thinking starts, where there's just this sense of presence. There's aliveness, there's awakeness, and there's no real story going on. And then wham! <laughs> it re-enters really fast, and we're back in our story. And as we get up, we remember more parts of the story, <laughs> you know, and what we have to do today, and who the people are we have to meet today, and the whole thing begins to reform and we dress up in these thoughts just as we dress up in our clothes to get ready for the day. It's re-entering a story called Me and Mine and it's a very, very convincing story. And so we easily get lost in it. So this phenomenon of mental proliferation, it is said, has four root causes, and that's what I want to 
explore with you tonight. So let me tell you what they are. They are all things that we can notice in our practice. The first is called tanha papancha. It is the proliferation and projection of greed, of wanting, of desire. The second is dosa papancha, the proliferation and projection of aversion. The third is ditti papancha, the proliferation of opinions and beliefs. And the fourth is mana papancha, the proliferation of identity through thought, the story starring the ever-present me. (laughs) So we'll go through each of these. We'll begin with tanha papancha. Tanha is a Pali word meaning unslakable thirst. I love that word. It's so vivid, isn't it? So it's pointing us to the desire that is like unslakable thirst. It's a thirst that never actually gets fully satisfied. In the Dhammapada, it says, the rain could turn to gold and still your thirst would not be slaked. Desire is unquenchable and ends in tears. So we're talking about a particular kind of desire here. And the activity of papancha is the projection of this kind of desire onto objects or experiences, making them appear to us very desirable. In this grip of desire, we go into a trance of thought. We can't think of anything else. You know the old saying, when a pickpocket meets a saint, all he sees are the saint's pockets. We get very narrow in our perspective. We know we are caught in this kind of thirsting whenever our well-being is dependent on having a particular kind of experience or getting a particular kind of object. We won't be okay if we don't get it. We want to believe that getting this, this, satisfying this desire, getting this object, will fulfill all of our wildest dreams. We will finally be fulfilled. And so we project our dreams out onto the object. You know, as teachers, we actually receive a lot of positive projection from you. And we know this goes on, and it's, in a way, somewhat useful. Sometimes it's negative projection. Some of you may, (laughs) at times, just, you know, really... "Mm." (laughs) But mostly, it's positive. Thank goodness. But we don't, as teachers, I think, buy into it very much. And I think that's one, one because um, the fact of us teaching all together as a team... We keep each other quite honest in that way. No one can get too inflated or feel too self-important because we know each other too well. We see each other's Achilles heels and we can't fool each other. And that's a good thing. Otherwise, sometimes teachers can begin to believe what their students project on them and they can get quite inflated. There's a seduction there. 
So, in coming to see us for your interview, you might notice something that goes on in the form of papancha before your interview. What might that be? (laughs) There's a desire for coming to see somebody. Just having contact with another human being seems really significant at times. Other times there's a desire for approval, for doing it right, for being seen, for being understood, for sharing a significant experience. You know, we've all been there, so we understand that there's a natural tendency in that situation in the silence. You begin to rehearse. You rehearse the interview. Has anybody done that? (laughs) Not just once. You don't rehearse it once, do you? (laughs) But perhaps several times. Maybe more than several times. You have all kinds of interviews, you know, before you even get in the door. Some of them are more successful than others. And when you actually come in for the interview, you've already done it many, many times. kind of amusing and kind of interesting. It's something to learn from. This is a form of papancha. Instead of writing the script, can you perhaps stay more closely in touch with the actual emotion? Is it excitement? Is it fear? Is it wanting that approval, wanting love? What is it that's going on inside of you emotionally before you come in the door? Some of you have already reported, those who arrived more recently, that um, you know, some time has been spent here already having imaginary conversations with your friends and family back home, telling them about this retreat and reporting your experiences in great de- detail. Another kind of papancha. Our desires definitely fuel this tendency. Many forms of desire show themselves on retreat, from the desire to find the right sitting posture, the right kind of food, waves of longing for people back home, or for that perfect relationship that you're waiting for, or obsessions about money, obsessions about sex, or you might have had a few Dharma diatribes, you know, carrying on a Dharma talk or two, right in the silence, all by yourself on your cushion, (laughs) or some kind of fantasies of future fulfillment once you get back home. And our meditation practice itself can become the object of a certain kind of desire. A desire to have a particular experience. Comparing your experience this time with other meditation retreats that you have sat. This mind of desire is quite noisy. It thinks a lot about how to get what it wants, how to plan, how to strategize. It is often quite addicted to this kind of pursuit of this fulfillment. Years ago, I did Zen practice, and we used to chant in the Zendo, desires are inexhaustible. Just as thinking is unending and unstoppable, so are desires. And they're quite fickle, 
aren't they? When we are sitting, we're making plans for the walking period. When we are walking, we can't wait to get back in the hall. We want to become still. And when stillness comes, we run away from it. Too much stillness makes us nervous. Or we are filled with longing. One day we long for the past, the next day we long for the future. Can we begin to notice the fickleness of our desires? So this, this is a whole area of exploration in our practice. And I feel really uh, a koan for our entire consumer culture. The question, when is enough enough? When do we have enough? When have we done enough? When are we enough? Practice also asks us to look at what it might be like to inhabit a world a more desireless way of being. What would that be like? Do fewer desires lead to boredom, passivity, lack of meaning, isolation? Or could it mean a greater aliveness, a greater sense of discovery, even a greater sense of connection with life itself? Instead of filling our lives with agendas of our desires, what if we noticed what occurs or arises without any wanting or volition on our part? The Buddha suggested that it could open a door to seeing things as they are free of our projections and stories about them. He called this the world of suchness. The Buddha said the highest form of knowing is to see everything in its suchness. To see everything, including ourselves, without projecting desire or aversion. The hermit poet Ryokan practiced many years in the mountains, living by himself. A robe and a bowl and a pretty simple hut. And he reports back this. He says, without desire, everything is sufficient. With seeking, myriad things are impoverished. Plain vegetables can soothe hunger. A patched robe is enough to cover this bent old body. Alone I hike with a deer. Cheerfully I sing with village children. The stream under the cliff cleanses my ears. The pine on the mountaintop fits my heart. So that's Tanha Papancha. One of the problems with doing a talk on Papancha is that the talk itself becomes... (laughs) 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 Uh, uh, It tends to go on a bit. (laughs) 
trying to restrain myself here. The next category, the next root cause of papancha is dosa papancha. This is thinking driven by aversion, by the mind that doesn't like. <clears throat> and the basic strategy of aversion is to get rid of things. If only I could get rid of the noise, or the pain, or these memories, then I would be able to meditate. Out of this belief that something needs to be different, we make plans. The thinking mind gets to work. We tend to strategize. What we are asked to do instead is to draw closer with our attention and see this activity for what it is. The aversive mind is really interesting because it is so exquisitely attuned to the unpleasant. It can notice, can be in the most beautiful environment, like here, and find the one thing (laughs) that is really wrong. (laughs) And it does this over and over again. On top of finding what's unpleasant, it, it, it tends to construct many beliefs about how things should be different, how things should be improved, or how other people should be acting. It makes rules. This person should not be walking so fast. This person should not be walking so slow. This person should not be wearing clothes that make sounds when they come in the hall. (laughs) You recognize this? The aversive mind actually likes to make rules about things. People should not be allowed to move their position in the hall. Once they have chosen it, they should stay there. People should come to the sittings on time. People should not move during the sitting. They should not be allowed to breathe very loudly. They should not look around in the dining room. What do they think they're doing? Have you made any rules up since you have been here about what other people should be doing? There's a strategy behind this, which is the aversive mind really just wants not to have any contact with the unpleasant. That's its basic wish in life. And so all of this is in the service of that. I tell a story about myself in India. India is a setup for anyone with any aversion at all. I happen to have quite a bit, so going to India really pushes just about every button I could think of. Um, I went on one trip with a friend, and I remember arriving in uh, Madras at three in the morning. Uh, You always arrive in some ungodly hour, and you go into the airport where you begin to enter India. And the first thing I noticed was that they were taking the luggage off the airplane, and this guy was just like throwing it into this big pile in the middle of the airport. And it defied all my Western notions about, you know, how you should pick up your luggage. (laughs) It was like, how are we ever going to get our bags out of this huge pile? It was a mountain of luggage, you know, and it just seemed like such a, why would they do that? Why? Why? And my whys kept on for days. Why don't they keep these cows out of the street? 
Why don't the cars stop for pedestrians? They could kill somebody. Why do they play loud Hindi music at three in the morning? Why, why, why? Until finally this person I was traveling with finally turned to me. He said, Anna, don't ask me why anymore. <laughs> don't make me try to explain India to you. It's advanced practice going to India. So here on retreat, we have many opportunities to notice this aversive reaction to that which is unpleasant. We encourage you to pay attention to sensations in the body. And here we may notice unpleasant sensations much more than we do in our daily lives because we can't avoid them here quite so easily. And so in response to an unpleasant sensation in the body, we can quite easily go into some form of papancha about what it means, about uh, it's a signal that, you know, you're deathly ill or that an injury is about to happen or maybe it already happened and you need to, to get medical attention or that something is horribly wrong with your practice. You have gone awry. This is the path that should not be taken. <laughs> Can we instead just notice unpleasant? Notice that the truth is we don't know what it means. It's just unpleasant. Can we actually take refuge in this not knowing? This is the truth. We don't know. It's just unpleasant. The third category of papancha is that of ditti papancha, that of the mind which forms views and opinions and believes them to be true, needs them to be true, wants them to be true. The mind which wants to know, to have a firm position to stand on. The mind which needs to be right. There's a cartoon of a couple, obviously in the middle of a some kind of an argument, and the, they're both looking very frustrated. And the man finally turns to the woman and he says, well, if it doesn't matter who's right and who's wrong, why don't I be right and you be wrong? <laughs> we like to be right. We really like to be right. Maybe it gives us a feeling of having a ground under us that feels secure in a shifting, changing world, to have that sense of groundedness. In meditation, we're not looking for right and wrong. We're not looking for the right doctrine to believe in, but rather we are opening ourselves to a way of seeing and a way of being which is more open-minded, more tolerant, more trusting of our capacity to know for ourselves what is true. The third Zen patriarch said, do not seek for the truth, only cease to cherish your opinions. It's a good word, cherish, because we do tend to cherish our opinions. We're so convinced of their rightness. For years I struggled with this one until I discovered the great refuge of not knowing. I discovered not knowing, not as a place of shame or failure or disgrace, which it is often interpreted to be. You're supposed to know things. But I discovered it as the truth. When we cease to cherish our opinions, we actually come closer to the truth of things. 
I had a teacher who taught me to explore the actual experience of I don't know. What I discovered is how often that is actually the truth. I don't know. I don't even have an opinion. And what's more and more significant is that I don't need to know. I used to think I needed to know everything. Now I discover that there's very little I need to know, actually. And that the living experience of not knowing is actually quite fine, very restful, very alive, very present. What is present when you say to yourself, I don't know? Explore this in your practice. Let go of the need to know. Right now, what do you need to know? Anything? Anybody need to know something right now? (laughs) (laughs) That's the joke of it. The direct experience of not knowing is free of ideas, free of opinions. It is actually open, awake, at ease. What more is needed? So meditation increases our tolerance for not knowing, for allowing this not knowing to be foreground in our experience. So I would recommend take some not knowing breaks every day while you're here. Explore this actual experience of just not knowing, not needing to know. See what it is like. The final uh, root cause of papancha is mana papancha, thought which takes itself to be me and mind. Mine. It is the activity of selfing, of creating images of self, thinking about ourselves, drawing conclusions about ourselves, telling ourselves the story of our lives. This me is quite chatty. (laughs) It tells a lot of stories. How am I doing? The comparing mind, which Gil talked about last night, is the domain of this manapapancha. What conclusion about yourself have you drawn today? I discovered in some years ago, a sacred mantra, and is a very good one to apply when you are, when you have arrived at a conclusion about yourself and you're quite certain that it's true. The sacred mantra is a little question. It has three words to it. Is it true? The shocking thing is most of the time, it's not. But we need this reminder, is it true? So you might want to ask yourself that every now and then, when you find yourself arriving at a conclusion about yourself or about another. This papancha that we do about ourselves over and over substantiates the illusion of someone to whom all this thinking refers back to. 
Again, Buddha Dasa wrote, We do not need to speak of the Buddha, the Dhamma, or the Sangha, or any points of doctrine, or the history of Buddhism. We can forget about all those things and begin our studies by examining the words me and mine, or rather the feeling in the heart which gives rise to these words. To truly understand me and mine leads to the extinction of suffering. It's a very rich exploration. The truth is this papancha of of selfing appears and disappears just like all the other forms of papancha. The papancha of desire appears and disappears. The papancha of aversion arrives, comes and goes. The papancha of making opinions, of needing to know, comes and it goes. When we're in the middle of it, it may seem quite urgent, like we just have to find the resolution. What we discover in practice is the resolution will never be found in thought. It will only be found in understanding the nature of thought, in seeing thought for what it is. Understanding it is empty, it is impermanent, it is not self. Begin to see in your practice if you can identify where your thinking is coming from. What is fueling your papancha? And this can be a very interesting investigation. As I said earlier, our goal is not to get rid of thinking, but to see its use and its limitations. Thought does not bring us to the ultimate truth. It cannot awaken us to ultimate truth. Achanamaro says that this attempt is, is like trying to drink water from the word cup. <laughs> it cannot be done. Instead, Papancha takes us further and further away from realizing this truth. So here on retreat, we have quite a wonderful opportunity to investigate the nature of thinking, very up close and personal. We can investigate its roots, roots, we can discover its source, we can see how it is working in us, And in that, we discover we don't need to be so driven by thought, so identified by the thinking mind. We don't need to be so bothered by our thinking. So I'd like to go back to what I began with, Suzuki Roshi. When you are sitting in the middle of your problem, what is more real to you? your problem or the fact of being here. Your presence in the here and now is the ultimate fact. So to close, I'd like to um, take you through a little guided meditation. And I'd like you to, I'm going to give you a sentence to hold in your mind. The sentence is, I am then your name, I would say Anna, I am Anna sitting here. 
So just repeat this sentence to yourself. I am your name sitting here. Now take away the word here. I am Anna sitting. Now take away the word sitting. I am Anna. Now take away your name. I am. Now take away the word am. Now take away the word I. Is anything lost? Is anything gained? When we look inside, we can't find ourselves. When we look inside, we cannot get rid of ourselves. This is the great mystery of our being. Thank you very much for your attention tonight. I've enjoyed it. Let's sit together for a minute. This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on March 10, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Archive. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.